So you're freed by grace, but you still want to try and live by the law. Well, that's a battle you'll never win, as we'll see next. Join us. From Valley Bible Church here in Hercules, this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Welcome to the program. We're looking at the battle of living under the law. Now, if you're free in grace, why would you ever want to go back? Sadly, many do. And they find it a losing proposition, as we'll see today, as we continue our look at Romans. We're in chapter 7 specifically, taking a look at this message called the battle of living under the law. With this edition of Truth For Today Now, our teacher and pastor from Valley Bible Church in Hercules, here's Pastor Phil Howard. It's a, um, quite a journey to dare study the Bible. You're almost in the danger of it changing your mind. The first duty of Bible study is to find out what it means. If you don't want to find out what it means, you can make it say whatever you want. And so presuppositions are our biggest battle when you come to the Bible. It's got to say this because that's the way I feel about it. Well, that makes you an authority over the Bible, right? And so today I want to teach you something that uh, in uh, over 45 years of preaching, I never taught nor believed until now. So this, for me, I told my wife this morning, I want to teach something I never taught. I, always, I want to teach just the opposite view. I never even knew the view I'm going to teach you because I think I've got the right view. But I held the view that is the most popular. Romans 7, and we're going to pick up verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And here are the issues in this chapter. He says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The question that theologians and Bible teachers have been divided over for years is who is this wretched man? Who is this wretched man? And here has been the most popular common view that I grew up with, that it's you as a believer in defeat. That it was commonly called the carnal Christian. The person in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, which is a terrible translation. It's carnal or fleshly. The law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. And he's not talking about meat on your bones. When he uses flesh many times, it means that ethical, moral evil that animates your body, that fallen humanity apart from God. So that every believer is able to say, the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. Besides that, I am being sold as a slave to sin. So, 
what I have grown up in wonderful men, let me tell you, those who take the opposite view so you know what I'm against. If you read MacArthur's footnote, he takes the opposite view of what I want to give today. So that's pretty big company. Don't write him and tell him I took the opposite view. J.I. Packers, keeping in step with the Spirit, takes the Augustinian view, which is the opposite of what I'm going to tell you today. John Stott, James Boyce, giants. But I was influenced by uh, a Greek exegete out of uh, Regents uh, by the name of Gordon Fee and also by Douglas Moo out of Trinity. So we are in good company no matter which view you fall on. So maybe it's not a live or die issue, but I rejoice at what I think it means. I rejoice at what it means for the Christian life. Uh, I'm going to try to teach today. I don't have three R's and a poem. Uh, you know what? Sermons don't set people free. Four D's and a broken pulpit doesn't save anybody. What saves is the truth. We're, I want you to know the pulpit. I'm not trying to impress you with homiletics. I taught homiletics. But what I've seen the longer I go, it's what the text means. It's truth that will set you free, not how slick my outline is. It's what it means. And that's the hard mental work. I've preached long enough. I could reach into my four cabinets at home and get some worn out, rusty outline. But I dared to study this again. And guess what? God pulled a surprise on me. He said, I'm going to change you totally on what you think it means. That, that, that's weird. In your 60s, you're supposed to be infallible. <laughs> I'm having struggle with my wife. Pray for her. <laughs> I have not convinced her nor God. Uh, but as she gets sanctified, her eyes will get clearer. <laughs> what am I doing? She's not even in this sermon. Forget that. Edit. Edit out of the sermon. I'm warming up. Look at what he says. He's been talking in chapters five, and he tells us what justified saints got. They got all these blessings. Chapter five, 12, we are not seen in Adam, we're seen in Christ. Chapter six says, we've been identified with Christ. We died to sin in our substitute. We've been raised to newness of life. Uh, we're no longer slaves of sin. We're no longer under the law. Did he not say that? Well, if you, if you know what the chapter means, you know. If you just rush to a dinner, you don't. But if you got it, if you listen to any of this preaching and teaching, you know that Romans 6 says, we have been joined with Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. Did he not say that? Read the chapter this afternoon and see if he does. Then he starts 7, 1 through 6 to explain 614 and 615. We're under grace, not under law. What does that mean? Chapter 7. And he starts in and he tells this marriage illustration. He applies it that we're no longer joined to the law, but we have died with Christ. We're free. Now he's going to begin in verses 7 through verse 25 to give you an autobiographical description of what it was like for he as a devout Jew, and I take the I in this chapter, to not just be Paul alone, but Paul in community with 
Israel who lived under the law. So the I struggle of Paul was the struggle of every devout Jew who lived under the law. They lived under the law. They could delight in the law, but he's going to show you the personal frustration he had and what all who lived under the law had. Watch what he says. The first thing is seven through 13, the law, God took something good to show that I'm bad. God took something good to show us that we're bad. Watch what he's did. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Why would he raise that question? Because his accusers, the Judaizers said, you're making the law evil. You teach grace is to free from the law. So the law must be evil. That's what you say, Paul. And he said that in Romans 3, 8. We're accused of teaching license and the law is bad. Is it bad? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And that word for no here is probably, I would not have experienced what sin was had not there been a law that forbid it and gave it boundaries. I came to experientially know my sin by the instrument of a righteous law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, that is the sin principle in me, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And he uses this word dead like it's inactive. It's lying dormant. It's like a dead man. But when the law came, the commandment, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy because its author is holy, God. And the it's righteous and good. Question, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The law of God, the righteous legislation of God, the righteous expectations of God, what, what a result. Did you know what Israel said the first time they heard the law? We will do all that the Lord our God has commanded. Exodus 19. Bring it on. Bring it on. We will keep everything he's commanded. No big deal. Bring it on, Moses. Yippee. 
We've got the 15 steps of how to be a unique nation and live under a theocracy. All we needed was divine legislation and it, we've got it made now. We didn't have this set of laws down in Egypt, but now we've got the divine rules for how to live for God in everything from hygiene to keeping the Sabbath to what we can eat. Bring it on, bring it on. And by the time God inscribed with his finger on the tablets and Moses goes down in Exodus 33 and 34 and he brings the tablets to them, he says, what is this noise that I hear, Joshua? It sounds like somebody's having a party and they get down there and while Moses has been on the mount for 40 days and brings down the sacred legislation, Aaron has made a golden calf to celebrate the God who got them out of Egypt. And they said, one of the gods of Egypt, the calf, is what got us across the Red Sea. And so when they read the law, 3,000 people were slain who were in that idolatry and in, in that uh, sexual orgy before this God. And were the very reading of the law for the first time, they were slain. And so they would be forever. Under the law, what did it do? It's good, it's righteous and holy. And I love what Paul, this devout Jew said, I got through all nine of the 10 commandments and guess which one slew me? Covetousness. And covetousness was the rabbinic one that they said represented all of the law. For it was the word epithumia, strong desires for anything other than the right, when it's used in a negative sense. It could be used strong desires for good, but it came to be used when I want something so bad, I won't stop to get it. I would kill to get it. I would steal to get it. I want your wife so bad that I'm going to steal her and commit adultery with her. That's what the Ten Commandments were talking about. Well, you can't commit adultery without covetousness. You've got to want something that's not yours. You can't steal from your neighbor unless covetousness is working in you. You see, the greatest problem in all of us right here is a covetous spirit, which Colossians says is idolatry. We've exalted something in our life higher than God wants it to be, and we've got to have it. We've got to get it. We've got to get more. We've got to get more of it. We've got to take even what God's forbidden because it goes all the way back to a couple in paradise, and God says, don't, and covetousness took over and it emptied paradise. We got evicted from paradise because this is the bent in our nature. If it is forbidden, it must be fun. If it's not fun, God would not have prohibited it. So we said, I heard the command. I'm clear on the prohibition. I don't lack knowledge, but I've got something in this nature. Don't be telling me what's forbidden because the forbidden fruit doubles its worth in the eyes of the covetous. And so Paul tells in this eye, he's describing Israel and himself. One time we were alive without the law. What's that? That's probably from Adam to Moses. 
There was a time we had no law and sin and rebellion wasn't as marked in us as a people. Some make this so biographical that they don't see anybody included in it but Paul. But I understand it to be including all of us who have lived under the law have had this experience alive at one time apart from the law. But when that which was good and holy and righteous came to us, we found what was good slew us. What was righteous proved us to be bad for what the law did not have any ability to control is there is a sin principle in the fallen race of Adam that law cannot control. And he's going to deal with three laws in Romans 7 through chapter 8. The law of God, the law of sin, and what he calls the law of the spirit in chapter 8. In the law, there's no power. In the sin principle, there's no good. And in the Holy Spirit, there's no defeat. And unless you come under the sphere of the Spirit, there's no hope. And by the way, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in all of this description that seems biographical and also representative of his people. It was the sin nature under pure law. What will happen? It will just seize the opportunity to thrust us to the ground the most moralistic one of us and prove you are a sinner for the law was never intended to save. It was intended to reveal how bad we really are in our light of our righteous standard. Galatians said it was to be a schoolmaster that led us to a savior. You need a savior for the law proves you've broken it over and over again. The law McGee used to say was like a mirror it could show you the dirt on your face, but it wasn't the soap to get it off. You need some soap. It can reveal what's wrong with you, but it didn't have the answer until it pointed the way to Messiah. Then we pick up verse 14. He says something in the midst of this struggle and this seeming defeat of what's going on in him. He said, we know that the law is spiritual. Now, that's quite a statement because he just said it showed us to be criminals, but there's nothing wrong with the law. His critics said, you said something's wrong with the law. Nothing's wrong with the law. It's the people living under it that something's wrong with, right? The speed limit isn't bad. It's those who don't pay any attention to it, right? Nothing wrong with the law. It's there for our protection. It's there for the general good of all. And he said lawless men need law to bring them under control. <clears throat> First Timothy 1, the law was made for the lawless. Abiding good citizens don't need the law, but crooks do. We've got to have boundaries. But now he makes this conclusion. The law is spiritual. Now, let's take this in the view that this is describing the Christian life. If this is describing the Christian life, we would then say, but I am fleshly, sold as a slave under the bondage of sin. Well, look at verse 17 in chapter 6. 
But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin. Is that in your Bible? You used to be slaves to sin. When was the used to? Before you got saved? I think that's accurate. Before you were saved, you were seen as a slave to sin. But then you wholeheartedly believed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, primarily the gospel. You have been set free from sin. Is that true? And you've become slaves to righteousness. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, past tense, you were free from the control of righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, how can we run over and read verse 14 as though that's us? Now, it's one or the other. Because this spiritual fleshly contrast that he's making is severe. He's not saying you're acting fleshly. No, you are a slave to the flesh. Now he's going to say in Romans 8, 5 through 8, that if you walk in the flesh, you're about to eternally perish. Not talking about discipline for the believer. If you are in the realm of the flesh, you're in the realm of eternal damnation. There's only two spheres. You're either walking in the spirit or in our spirit person, or you walk in the realm of the flesh. And there ain't no middle ground. And that's the weakness of those who've bought all this carnal stuff that says, I'm in a third category that I get to do a little bit of both, but I'm neither one. No, no, you're in one sphere or the other, according to Romans. You're in the spirit or you're in the flesh as to your position. Now we're told in Romans 6, act like you're in the spirit, act like you're joined to Christ. You've got to obediently carry out your position in your walk. But I don't believe verse 14 describes the Christian. I am not a slave to sin, for that has ended in my union with Christ. Objectively, I'm working it out in my daily life, but I have a freed status before God. So what does he do? He says, being this kind of a man, a fleshly man who is not spiritual, a man that is a slave to sin, let me tell you the psychological battle that I went through living under the law and what all of Israel experienced living under the law. And here we go. Now, I think why this is so commonly treated for Christians is we all have had those tug of war struggles with sin. We do struggle with sin. We all know that. And it's going to say here this battle between desiring and doing. I mean, we have that battle all the time, don't we? I mean, I'm sitting there. I said, man, I sure would like to have a cup of coffee. I hope she comes through the front room at this time. I don't like desire. I like the doing. And if she's really prayed up and spiritual, she'll sense my need. Well, let me tell you, the longer you're in a marriage, you better get some doing too. Just desiring is not enough. Desiring has got to be matched with doing. And you're listening to Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard from Valley Bible Church in Hercules. 
Our series is called The Life of the Righteous. A look at Romans chapters 6 and 7 as we continue our greater survey through this marvelous book. Copies of the broadcast or the entire series today's message was taken from can be obtained from us by simply calling or stopping by our website. You can even write to us if you wish. Our phone number is 855-833-9864. Again, you can reach us at 855-833-9864. As mentioned, you're also welcome to stop by our website. We have other resource materials available along with this series we're currently in the middle of. It's all found at valleybible.org. That's valleybible.org. Other information about who we are and what we believe can be found there as well. And consider this a personal invitation to join us for worship Sundays here at Valley Bible Church. Directions and details, again, can be found at our website, valleybible.org. If you're writing to us, the address is 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278. That's here in Hercules. The zip code is 94547. Another reason for you to contact us either by phone or by mail or stopping by our website, and that is to become a TFT sustainer. And a TFT sustainer, simply put, is somebody who comes alongside of us financially and prayerfully saying, yes, I'd like to partner with you as you continue to spread the gospel through the greater Bay Area. No gift is too small. No gift is too large. We want to partner with you as we continue the ministry of the gospel here on this station. As a TFT sustainer, you'll receive a quarterly newsletter, a once-a-year special gift, and access to Take a Break with Pastor Phil. It's our weekly devotional video. Again, call us at 855-833-9864 and let us know that you'll become a partner of the ministry here at Truth For Today. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. 